0: Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with historyhub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the historyhub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Teresa Shoesmith. She is currently a PhD Research Fellow at NUI Galway. Her paper is entitled Stone, Mud and Straw, Landscape People and Material Culture in East Clare, 1670-1750. The barony of Tulla, bordering County Galway to the north, the Earl of Tolman's territories to the west and south, and Derg and County Tipperary to the east, was the largest but, one, but the, one of the least populated of Clare's eight baronies. Apart from the ecclesiastical community at Killaloo and the Earl of Thoman's planned settlement in Six Mile Bridge, there were very few hamlets. The 1659 census shows that communities such as they were in the aftermath of war and famine still clustered in the localities where the tower houses of the ruling McNamaras had stood and across County Clare the McNamaras had had something like at least 150 tower houses across the way so they were extremely powerful people. They were previously the owners of over 13,000 acres of land and were dispossessed of all but about 500 acres or so and most of their power. In his study on Gaelic territory in County Clare, Pat Nugent maintains that Gaelic social structures continued for longer in peripheral areas such as Tuller than they did in other parts of Ireland, and historiography tells us that post-1650 such surviving structures, physical, political and social, were overwhelmed and obliterated by the rise of the ascendancy and the landlords. And in this paper, I just want to consider whether the physical evidence of how people lived and used their landscapes supports or refutes this traditionalist view. The Catholic uprising in 1641 and the subsequent Cromwellian incursions of the 1650s ...formed a watershed in the history of Ireland and the barony. And I'm conscious that in ending my paper around 1750... ...I'm going beyond the boundaries of Tudor and Stuart history... ...but I don't think you can make sense of the Hanoverian perception... ...of the social and material landscape of East Clare... ...unless it's considered in comparison to the perceptions of earlier periods. And in seeking to create an enlightened society... ...the ascendancy class in Ireland were creating a society... ...that was very much viewed in opposition to the society of Gaelic Ireland... And this would have been especially true in an area where Gaelic social structures lingered. But as I hope to show, that opposition was mediated and tempered by Tuller's peripheral location and the complexity of its layers of society. In the aftermath of the Cromwellian Wars, Tuller's material power symbols, its McNamara tower houses, were by and large destroyed. This is not the best slide. Um, it hasn't come out particularly well on here, but you can see just the ruins of, of what was an extremely significant castle, a Castle. In the faecal area, a local man named Edmund Doherty paid £32.10 shillings to demolish 13 castles at £2.10 each. And eyewitness reports talk of a starving population huddling around the ruins of Towers. And just going on from what Gertie was saying there about the height of a building being very significant in terms of show a demonstration of power to level that the McNamara castles was a a symbolic levelling of their power as well as um, making available an awful lot of stone for building something else. It's not simply that people huddling around the ruins of towers were seeking shelter. Although Gaelic society was hierarchical and far from egalitarian, it was a society in which commoners lived and worked in the immediate vicinity to the lords and their clients. Although Rory Sherlock has shown that tower house design evolved from communal structures to more private dwellings, the houses of labourers and artisans would have been located in and around the Bourne. Most people would have been in some degree related, and the tower house Tower House incorporated the Lord's Dwelling along with the locus for social gathering, justice, the marketplace and so on. So that with the destruction of the Tower Houses came the destruction of the material loci of all of these social structures. So that it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that society as the people of of Tulla had known it was destroyed as well. Their homes were pretty much in ruins, their leaders dispossessed and disempowered and they themselves had been decimated by famine and in many cases transportation to the West Indies if not by outright massacre because one account tells of a Cromwellian massacre in Village itself. Society then had to be rebuilt from the ground up as it were. So who was rebuilding it and what was informing their decisions about what to build and how? One significant factor in Tuller's history in this period is that the majority of the transplantees who came into the barony post-1660 were Irish Catholics who were dispossessed from their own lands in Tipperary, Limerick and Cork, with a few from Galway, Waterford and Kerry. They were a mixture. There were large landowners such as Donna O'Callaghan of Cork, merchants such as the lynches and roaches from, Galway, from Limerick City, old Norman families such as the butlers and Fitzgerald and the Galway burks. It's likely, as many of them came from districts closer to the centres of power, that they were much more Anglicised than the semi-Gaelic McNamaras. According to travellers and observers during the pre-Corn-William period, Irish landowners lived in what appeared to be poor, relatively poor and humble dwellings, larger perhaps, but very little different to the single-storey thatched dwellings of their kinsmen and labourers. In his survey of the houses of County Clare, Hugh Weir states that Cahahurley House near Dyke, was originally a thatched longhouse and although Gaelic tables were amply spread with a wide variety of food and drink, <coughs> their homes appear to have been very simply furnished. Tower houses, of which Patulla was particularly well endowed, were designed for territorial strength, not for elegance of architecture. In some cases, the new residents lived for a time in the tower houses, and their adjoining buildings, probably, as Bruno Dorlig has commented, because they didn't feel any too secure. When they began to rebuild in the 18th century, some landowners incorporated the towers or the remains into their new structures. However, there were many more houses which were built using the stones from the ruined buildings, but in a style which reflected the ideology of the Enlightenment, they were classical, symmetrical, with large windows rather than the narrow embrasures which <coughs> characterised the earlier wind- tower houses. There were no grand mansions in Tulla such as the Earl of Tomond built at Dromoland or the Earl of Clanrickard at Portumna. But Henry Pelham's grand jury map of 1787 shows numerous big houses, several of which are still standing today. Some were very imposing. Ena Castle in Kilmurray Parish was a very large 17th century fortified house incorporating an earlier medieval tower house and bourne. The earlier, plainer versions of these houses were sometimes extended and embellished later in the 18th century. Cahar House on the shores of Loch Grainy and now a very beautiful place which is up for rent if anybody fancies hosting a, an event there was built on land granted to the McGraths who were ca- transplanted from County Tipperary and the facade that you see there is in fact a later 18th century addition onto a much earlier house which is built onto the back so as power was centralised and enshrined in the state the houses of the old ruling Gaelic aristocracy were appropriated and incorporated into the new ideology the seeds of the later villages which exist today, such as Tuller with its courthouse and market square, were laid at this time, although in fact that Tuller courthouse wasn't built until the 19th century. Settlements were no longer to be clustered around and within the precincts of the landowner's dwelling. Social space and the built environment encompassed Enlightenment thinking and a doctrine of separation between the educated elite and the ignorant peasantry. The new landowners, originally Catholic, increasingly found their position in the new social hierarchy easier to maintain if they converted and, by and large, adopted the ideologies of the Enlightenment. In Talla Parish, the Malonies, who were once clients of the McNamaras and relatively insignificant in the post-Cromwellian sources, succeeded in negotiating the penal legislation by means of partial conversion, where some Protestant members of the family acted on behalf of their Catholic kin, and with clever marriages and extensive leasing of land, one branch of the family eventually became influential landowners and builders of several properties, including some very fine Georgian houses. Lismian, a very old settlement which encompassed a ring fort as well as a tower house, was taken over by the O'Callaghan's of Cork, who discarded the remains of the tower and built a large early 18th century three-storey five-bay house with an extensive plantation and park land. The parkland and its plantation of trees was significant because it emphasised the separation of those in power, be they landowners or holders of extensive leases and their tenants. And in the case of this particular house, Caha House, the the lands on the southern shore of Loch Graney included the arable heartland of the Lekhot McNamaras. To take some of the best, indeed virtually the only, tract of good arable land in a huge Arcan parish and to turn it over to lawns, formal gardens and plantations, was a gesture that not only reiterated the McNamara's loss of power and territory, but also removed the local people from the vicinity of the Lord's House to a village more than a mile away and out of sight. And in fact, the drive to the house is extremely impressive, down through a very beautiful planted wood. This taming of the once Gaelic landscape is, according to William Smith, part of the anglicisation process which utilised and removed the wild, untamed great forests of the area and replaced them with carefully designed, artfully planned parks and gardens. Implicit in the taming of the Irish landscape was the notion of taming the Irish wild underclass. In the writings of commentators, the good landlord is one who encourages his tenants to whitewash their houses, to remove their middens to a respectable distance and to live a life of honest industry. The strongest criticisms are reserved for absentee landlords, those who fail to care properly for their plantations, and middlemen who exploit land and people for their own profit. And equally reviled are the remnants of Gaelic nobility, the squirearchy who live in old-style thatched longhouses, drinking, hunting, and spending lavishly on hospitality in the manner of their ancestors. So what of the working people? James Stevens, an English Jacobite who kept a diary of his travels with the army of James II in 1690, describes the bishopric of Killaloo as the meanest I ever saw dignified with that name, with very few houses which have anything tolerable. Of the cottages in which his men were quartered, he says, they're very poor cabins that only served barely to cover them from the weather. Thomas Molan's survey for the Earl of Thomond in 1703 distinguishes between farmhouses, good houses and cabins. In Clunfada, near Killaloo, he finds a good stone slated house one storey high with stable barn and other houses. The shacks of mud and straw that horrified post-war travellers were probably dwellings erected as emergency housing for people who had been dispossessed and didn't know where they were eventually going to settle. And observers may also have been confusing temporary summer housing with permanent structures. In a post-war period of flux and uncertainty, we can't rely on eyewitness accounts to tell us how ordinary people lived for the rest of the time. What is clear is that the written accounts of working people's homes and lives reflect the ideologies and biases of their writers, and so they serve to polarise the, the enlightened new, English, the new landlords and their unenlightened tenants. It's quite difficult to find evidence of people's lives from the people themselves, those who survived war, famine, and transportation rebuilt and carried on farming or working their trades, mostly leaving no written record. And a comprehensive survey of surviving vernacular houses has yet to be done, although some work has been done in this field in West Clare. But East Clare does have an abundance of folk tradition which gives us hints of a rich cultural life rooted in the physical landscape which existed in tandem with and often in opposition to the state and the powerful. And although these stories were collected in the 20th century, many talk of years that were very long past and probably back to penal times. The most obvious physical symbol is perhaps the mass rock and the holy well where people gathered to observe their own religious practices often running risks to do so. There are also stories that tell of people placing earth to their farms and gardens in the coffins of family members who were going to be buried away from their own townland during periods where burials were prohibited except in the burial grounds of the established church. These stories describe a relationship between people and landscape that's akin to the relationship that existed amongst other indigenous cultures, such as the Western Apache, for example, of whom anthropologist Keith Basso says that a sense of place and the process of placemaking is a way of constructing social traditions and, in the process, personal and social identities. What What people make of their places is closely connected to what they make of themselves as members of society. These social identities, embedded in the use of mass rocks and the soil of one's home place and belief in the power of holy wells, were reinforced by beliefs and practices that existed outside of the established church and state. As part of the ideology of profitability and improvement, there were various attempts to industrialise the rural areas of Tuller by encouraging linen manufacture and exploiting the remaining woodland for charcoal to process the deposits of iron, which could be mined in several parts of the barony. Transport links were good with the Shannon Close at hand, so for a time iron smelting was a prof- profitable concern, most notably for Richard Boyle, Earl of Cork, who had been granted extensive lands in the barony. And you can see there, there's a, a picture of Ballyhickey mine, which is just down the road there. Again, not a particularly good slide. It, was, it wasn't a very great, very good day when we were there. Again, this industrialisation of a rural landscape has a deeper meaning. William Smith talks about the use of fire, iron, timber, wind, and muscle power in the transformation of Ireland's material culture and landscape. A central theme here is the radical transformation of Ireland's physical and biotic environments via plowshares and spades, axes and swords, consequent on colonisation and the imposition of a new economic system that we now recognise as early capitalism in form. Smith was talking specifically about New English colonisation and the colonisers in Tulla were largely transplanted Irish Catholics, not New English, but they very quickly adopted the values of early capitalism and ideologies of improvement, both of the landscape and the moral character of their tenants if they hadn't adopted them already. A story from the Hamlet of Fecal, uh, Furnace near Fecal, site of one of the iron mills, concerns the belief that since St Martin was broken on a wheel, no wheel should be turned on St Martin's Day. Following the belief, the workers at the iron mill in Furnace asked that the mill should be shut down on St Martin's, but the owner, who'd given them a day off a few days earlier for Halloween, refused and made them work through. That night a fire broke out and the mill burned to the ground. And similar stories come from the neighbouring barony of Inchicronan, where a mill owner's son died after he refused to close the mill on St Martin's Day. These particular tales are examples of resistance to the landowners who refuse to respect custom, but in itself the refusal to abandon traditional folk beliefs is a, a means of resistance to dominant ideologies, although it often serves the less desirable purpose of reinforcing cultural stereotypes of the backward superstitious Irish. Although the sources talk of a devastated landscape and the tower houses were largely destroyed or incorporated, some at least of the large and small houses of the lesser Gaelic clients survived and were repaired or reused, as Thomas Molan's 1703 survey has shown. We know that not all of the dispossessed Gaelic families actually moved, so we might surmise that continuing to live in traditional-style houses was a form of resistance to new ideologies, although vernacular architecture, it must be said, is probably governed as much by economy and availability of materials as by aesthetic or political considerations. To conclude then, the rebuilding of the material landscape of Tulla after the Cromwellian Wars was a multi-layered endeavour that attempted to impose not just a new social and political power structure, but to embed the ideologies of that power structure in the visual landscape. Use of the folklore record to support this argument is controversial. I believe that it has value as one of the few sources for the life of ordinary people, but I'm aware that not all historians agree, and there are obvious difficulties with using 20th century records as evidence for 17th century practices. Moreover, in a short paper, it's impossible to explore the variety of social layers. Tuller Society wasn't polarised into incoming landlords and poor dispossessed locals, but it was a multi-layered society where, especially during the post-Cromwellian period, a very great deal of juggling went on with people often remaining on their lands and continuing to farm despite rulings to remove themselves. And in fact, some of the leases from the um, later 17, 1711, certainly, showed that the McNamaras were still living on their original land, having subleased it then from the people that took it over. Incomers who leased lands from the major landowners so, sorry so, some local families became agents for incomers or converted branches of their own family and incomers who leased lands from the major landowners such as the Earls of Tonement and Inchi Quinn might then sublease large farms back to their original owners. It was made even more complex by the fact that well into the 18th century Tuller remained overwhelmingly Catholic due to its influx of Catholic transplantees so that there was not a simple div- division between Anglo-Irish ascendancy landlords and and Irish peasantry. What came out of the melting pot of late 17th century Tuller was a mix of rich and poor, native and incomer, Catholic and Protestant, and although the state-backed ideologies ruled, they didn't do so unmediated or without resistance. My own observations of the landscape indicate a variety of big and modest Georgian houses, the remnants of tower houses and long houses, some incorporated and some still standing, and some very old farmhouses and buildings, often used (coughs) as barns or derelict. Both the domination and the resistance are written into the physical landscape, in the houses, mills, walls and rocks that the people have left behind. Thank you.